Today is Exodus. And Exodus has a cliffhanger right at the end, waiting for Leviticus. So uh, I'm excited for us to get to that point. So if you haven't, everybody have a handout. Everybody get on the handouts. Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus. I have a new section that I want to put on all our handouts that's called Sunday School Stories. Um, because I think it's helpful for us to know, you know, we know, we know lots of Old Testament stories, but it's really helpful for us to be able to locate them and know where they belong and how they fit into the book. So, uh, anybody remember some Sunday school stories from the book of Exodus? What are some of those stories that everybody knows? Plagues. The plagues. Absolutely. We all seen the classic Prince of Egypt. Prince of Egypt. He has it. Wow. I, we've got it. You can borrow it. Um, You may notice right here in the center of the page, it says, think Prince of Egypt. Plagues. All right. What else? Oh, now you're looking at the cheat sheet there. Crossing the Red Sea. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's that's an iconic story. Yep. Yep. Not the golden tablets, sorry, the tablets. Right. I think I think Genesis just has striking the rock and then numbers gets into the the other ones. I had to look that up because I was unsure. Um, it was, yes. Do, do y'all know why it's important that he didn't strike a second time? Christ is the rock, right? He's the one who pours out water. Christ, how many times was he struck for our sins? He was he was struck in, in the whole scheme of his sacrifice, he was struck once for sin. So for Moses to strike a second time actually is not consistent with, with who Christ is and how he's sacrificed once and for all for his people. He was to be spoken to. Uh, the rock was the second time, but um, Moses went against that. So that's, that's part of why that was such an, an important issue. But that's, that's numbers. We're already ahead of ourselves. I guess we're done with Exodus now? Uh, <laughs> Diane. Yeah, the burning bush. I don't think I put that in here. No, I didn't. Even just the beginning of Moses' story, like being found the Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. We're going to find out tonight. That's hugely important. It mirrors Israel itself. It's crazy. It's good stuff. Okay. Great. So I just say, uh, think Prince of Egypt. That is uh, that helps you kind of remember. A lot of what's going on here in the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus in Hebrew is titled, this book is titled, And These Are the Names. That's what it's called. And that's just the first, uh, first word or two of the book. It's important to note that uh, that first word is and. It's conjunction. It's tied very closely to Genesis. Genesis uh, is really volume one, Exodus here, volume two of this story. Uh, it's, the, the major storyline is exactly uh, the Exodus of the Israelite people from Egypt. Literally, the word uh, Exodus means the way out. And it it includes their wandering in the wilderness and how God gave the law at Mount Sinai. It's not their long wandering. This is the wandering between the the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. So it's the short wandering. Uh, The Exodus is the major redemptive event in the life of ancient Israel. It is referred to time and time again throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. It defines the redemption of the people of Israel. The book concludes with the presence of God. Go ahead and flip to the last couple, uh, the last paragraph here of the book of Exodus.
Exodus 40. We start in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It's a cliffhanger. What happens? Can anybody go into the presence of the Lord? Leviticus is going to answer that. So wait for next time. All right, back to the beginning. Who authored Exodus? Uh, Moses. And Mo, or, uh, Exodus has a remarkable number of Egyptian cultural phrases and references. And that only further supports the Mosaic authorship. And why is that? Because he was raised there in the house of Pharaoh. So for him to use these Egyptian phrases and these um, Egyptian, uh, just Egyptian knowledge makes perfect sense. Uh, you also see in Exodus seventeen fourteen and Exodus twenty four four that there are um, plenty of, uh, and there are others where it says the Lord spoke to Moses. So it's very clear that this is revelation to to Moses. All right, I want to read you a couple examples of the Egyptian influence here. Um, first of all, when Moses talks about how the Lord is going to humiliate and destroy Pharaoh in Egypt with a strong arm. You see this in Exodus 3 and 6 and 7 and 15 and other places. This is an ironic phrase because Pharaoh was the one who was described in terms of having a strong hand or the possessor of a strong arm or the one who destroys enemies with his arm. So what Moses is doing is taking the Egyptians' own description of power for their leader and using it against their leader, saying God is stronger than your Pharaoh. So he's using these Egyptian phrases such as that. And then there's another phrase uh, in Exodus 9.18. The Lord prophesies uh, that an intense hailstorm will strike Egypt such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. That phrase is, is a common Egyptian expression of the time. By the way, I'm reading from Miles Van Pelt's uh, book uh, on the Old Testament introduction here. Uh, it, here's uh, Tutmosis III, who's a pharaoh. Uh, he would pronounce that they had done something greater than all the things that were in the country since it was founded. This expression that this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And Moses, again, uses that phrase, writes that phrase as God's pronouncement of judgment against these prideful people who thought they were the greatest thing since sliced bread. And there are others, such as uh, the word Ra, the Hebrew God called Ra. In Hebrew means evil. And so there's a description here where uh, Pharaoh says, Ra is in your face. Uh, but Moses writes that intentionally to say, actually, evil is in your face. Uh, and that's in Exodus 10, 10. You see it also Exodus 5, 19, Exodus 32, 12, 22, and elsewhere. I can give you all these things later if you'd like. And there are uh, other things such as Moses, his name alone. Anybody remember what it means? To draw out. That's exactly it. To draw out because he was drawn out of the water. That word also means son of. 
Um, so you get you hear these um, these pharaohs named Tutmosis, Moses, Tutmosis, son of Tut. All right, so uh, Moses itself is a, uh, a Hebrew and Egyptian play on words. So, uh, and then I maybe heard of Ah Moses, another. Um, I think it's a god. It was a king. King Ah Moses is the son of Ah. So, just uh, interesting Egyptian connections there. The book of Exodus was written as law and as a prophetic or theological history to inform the readers of God's greatness and his deeds. So, any questions so far about the intro and background issues? Hopefully, that's, I think this stuff is interesting. I love getting into figuring out what these words mean. The ancient Near Eastern studies were something that I really liked to dive into when I was in uh, college and seminary. So, uh, sort of an interesting reflection on Moses' biography and him writing. Like, the fact that he was raised in Pharaoh's house means he was probably fairly well educated. Mm-hmm. Um, but... <clears throat> Um, we'll probably get into it. One of the things that I think the Prince of Egypt explores really well, though it's not like recorded for us, is that the Pharaoh he confronts is more or less his brother, right? Very possibly. Um, yeah. And so uh, that just adds a whole layer of like crazy interpersonal conflict yeah. between yeah. them. Go to Hebrews 10. I think it's 10. Um... Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. You're going to think Moses is absolutely crazy when you read this. Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses... We sang by faith this morning. Um... And we sang it last Sunday night. Great song. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's giving up a spot in the most powerful king's house with all the privileges that comes with that and chose instead to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy these fleeting pleasures of sin. Is that not a conviction of our attachment to the things of the world? That he was willing to surrender all that greatness. And that may include this, well, it does include this familial connection. Son, the daughter Pharaoh. That's, that's your family. And he was willing to sacrifice that. <clears throat> okay, uh, this book is really hard to outline. So I'm going to give you two potential outlines. Uh, there's generally two parts to the book. There's uh, chapters 1 through 18, and then there's 19 through 40. 1 through 18 is generally the Exodus. And then 19 through 40 is generally the law at Mount Sinai with the tabernacle at the, at the end. Uh, so uh, that's, that's the two-part structure. Uh, here's, here's one of the specific outlines. It's a geographical structure. And you could say that, first of all, there's the Egypt part, which is chapters 1 through 15. With uh, talking about intro and Moses' birth, the bulrushes, the basket in the river, all that. Moses is called. This is uh, the burning bush, chapters 3 and 4. The exodus in chapters 5 through 15. And then there's the next geographical section, in the wilderness of Shur and Sin or Zin. This is on the way to Mount Sinai. This is um, a few chapters, chapters 15 through 18. And here, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, then they get to Mount Sinai. 
And here the law is given and the Mosaic covenant is established. Uh, anybody know the famous uh, Ten Commandments is found in what chapter? Exodus 20. That's it. Exodus 20 is the big, famous uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, bonus points. This is Sorry, this is my CVCA teacher days coming out here. Um, anybody know the other famous Ten Commandment passage? Second most famous. Yeah. Um, it might be. I thought it was Deuteronomy 5, but it might be 10. I always... I can never remember if it's uh, divided by two or divided by two twice. <laughs> uh, it's Deuteronomy five. Yeah, Deuteronomy five. So, okay. And then at Mount Sinai, the law is given there in uh, Exodus twenty. And then there's also the uh, the book of the covenant, which is given uh, chapters twenty one through twenty three. There's the tabernacle instructions, and then the priesthood instructions. These. If you're not detail-oriented, these chapters will put you to sleep. It is meticulous. Details about how the tabernacle is to be constructed with what kind of material. And then there's a story of the golden calf, and then it returns to all these detailed instructions, and then it retells the story in as much detail, saying, originally God commanded all this detail, and here we are, they did it in all this detail. Which is interesting that such a, a story of such detailed following the Lord Right in the middle is the story of the golden calf and turning from the Lord, which already gives you a picture of Israel's, how they're so, uh, they oscillate. They're, they, they get tossed to and fro. They follow and then they don't, and then they follow and then they don't. Uh, so that's, that's the geographical structure if you want to go Egypt, wilderness, Sinai. Uh, or if you can, you can just divide it up this way, there's the content structure. God saves Israel from Egypt, uh, chapters 1 through 18. God gives his law, 19 through 24. And then there's the building of the tabernacle, 25 through 40. And that's generally how I think about the book. All right, let's talk about the message and the theology. There are some rich themes here in the book of Exodus. Um, God the Deliverer. He delivered them out of Egypt. And that's reminded, Israel's reminded of this all the time, especially Exodus 20, uh, when there is a covenant being made or when this law is being given, uh, the, the one who is giving the law states what they have done. And here in Exodus 20, if you flip over there, um, you'll see this. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the prologue to the Ten Commandments. This is who he is, and because of who he is, these commandments carry great weight. And so you start with who God is, and the reminder is always, I have brought you out of Egypt. I have brought you out of the land of slavery. So the God is the deliverer. It's, uh, and it, that story reminds Israel often. It, it's the prologue to their covenant stipulations. Exodus also has a lot of covenant renewal. Uh, there's Passover blood that's put over the whole household, which reminds us of this covenant God has made with his people to save them. And then he gives the Decalogue and the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant is really a specific application of the, sorry, the Decalogue means the Ten Commandments. Uh, he gave the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then gave a very specific application of those to Israel in this instance, in Exodus 21 through, 20, through 23. Um, these are... And this is a great benefit because if, if God is giving you, continuing to give you the law, that means he's not forsaken you in one way you can put it. You can think of it that way. Or another way you can think of it is if I'm being expected to live by the law, that means God expects his children 
to continue to live out of faith. So it's a reminder of the faith. So I have in here, it's the, um, these are benefits for the imperative response to the indicative of the gospel. If the indicative of the gospel is true, if it is true what Christ has done, that God has saved his people, and you believe that, then the imperative flows out of that. And so the fact that God is giving the imperative, the, the commands to his people who are, who are in Christ, it's a reminder, you're in Christ. Uh, if he's giving these commands to the Israelites saying, uh, this is how you interact with me as my people, it's a reminder, you're my people. And so there's great comfort in that. There's covenant renewal and even being given commands. And so uh, that's what's going on in Exodus 20 through 23. Also, when you see them worship God, we believe that the worship of God is a covenant renewal ceremony every week. We believe that God is once again entering into this relationship, not as if he had left, but we had forsaken the relationship and he renews with us every week. We come as sinners and we leave as uh, we're reminded throughout the service that we are forgiven and we leave with his blessing again every week. He also provided bread and water in the wilderness. This is a very loose connection. Uh, It's just a shadow, but he's giving bread and drink to his people in the wilderness right after they are baptized in the Red Sea. So you've got, you've got the waters of baptism, you've got the, the bread and the drink of the Lord's Supper, and these are all ways that God invites us into, into worship him, uh, to bless his people. And, and sure, the water is water, not, not wine, but it's, it's, again, the reminder that God is feeding his people. He is their, their bread and their, their drink. And... That's true, he did turn it to wine, yeah. (laughs) And uh, if you look back at the Nile River, it was red, Uh, literally blood. Uh, Chapter 34 in the renewal of the covenant, um, that's a specific covenant renewal chapter. Another theme here in the book is eschatological judgment. I I hope I don't use the word eschatological in a sermon. Uh, If I do, kind of raise a red flag um, from the back so I can, oh, sorry, I don't need to say that. But it's great in a time like this to explain the eschaton refers to the last things, not in a sense that we talked about this morning where the, you know, Jesus' incarnation begins the last time, but the eschaton and the, the end of time. So eschatology or eschatological refers to the end of time. And there's going to be a judgment at the end of time when Christ returns. And you get to see vivid imagery in Exodus of how God is going to punish, how he has punished Egypt and how he will punish all of his enemies. The punishment of Egypt, striking of the rock, that striking of the rock is the eschatological punishment for you and me. Because when we are found in the rock, the striking that he received is what paid our penalty. Uh, And then we have the Sabbath rest as well as one day and also one year in seven. Uh, The world looks on. I I thought this was just a fascinating way to think of it. Uh, If Israel has um, one year in seven where they're not working and they're just feasting off last year's bounty, the rest of the world is looking in saying, who is their God? Why do they get to party like that all the time? What is this, this bounty in this life? It's obedience to God's commands. It's resting one and seven. Uh, and so the, the rest of the world, and, and that is an image for how we're going to enter his Sabbath rest. And we're going to be a part of that, but those outside will not. And so uh, the Sabbath is a distinctive of God's people, which indicates the judgment that God's that people outside of the covenant will not receive. 
Then there's the tabernacle and the priesthood and worship. Now, there's a little bit of priesthood here, a few chapters in uh, chapters 28 through 31. A lot of this uh, is really, it dives into more in in Leviticus. Uh, And then there's a lot about the tabernacle. And so we see God's presence is really important. That's the whole point of the tabernacle is God's presence among his people. And we realize that Christ is the one who tabernacled with his people. Christ became flesh and tabernacled among us, John 1. Uh, that's an important connection because he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is with his people. And the tabernacle represents that. And then there's righteousness in the law, the burning bush. Um, and I also put in here Exodus 40. Oh, that's the, the very end, the, the paragraph that we read uh, saying, all right, so this is God's presence, but Moses can't enter. Who can enter? A question is set up and it will be answered in Leviticus. A burning bush with taking off your shoes. Uh, in the presence of a holy God. Who can approach this God? Who can keep the law? Only those who follow, only those who have faith and then follow their faith with obedience. Thoughts on the message and the theology, specifically the themes here of the book of Exodus? Yes. I'm just, I'm really struck by Mm-hmm. Uh, from the garden, and it's really—it's mm-hmm. like it's—it's it's, love. I mean, love never ends, right? That's mm-hmm. what it says in First Corinthians thirteen. It we blow in the garden, mm-hmm. right? And he renews it. He brings judgment with Noah. He sets up a covenant with Abraham. Get it again in, in Exodus. Leviticus sets this whole so it, it's his presence keeps coming back and he sets these laws and rules so that so that we can be in his presence, but also being a light to the rest of the nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We always keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. That uh, so that they will be attracted, right? They are uh, a holy nation of royal priests, mm-hmm. right? That's what we are. Mm-hmm. But that's what he wanted them to be. But mm-hmm. if, you, if you're going to be in my presence, right? He's good. He's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? C.S. Lewis. Right? He's both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, it just, but that he is taking the trouble. You talk about the, like, just the detailedness of how the tabernacle is constructed, right? And if you look at it, there's a lot of references to the garden again hmm. in, the, in the rebuilding of the, of the tabernacle. And so he goes into great deal of detail about that. And then you get into Leviticus, and he gets into huge detail about how you're to approach him there, not only the priests, but the people. And he lets Moses back in. And it just, and then it continues with Christ, right? And then we have Christ in us, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's that's what we're here for is to to tell to point to Jesus. That's right. You can you can have God's presence. You can be in His presence. Mm-hmm. Back to Jude this morning, yeah. we are to build each other up in the most holy faith. Right. Right. And that's I mean that's laced with. 
images of the tabernacle and the holiness of God and, and the faith that is what we have in Christ and his righteousness. So yeah, you're right. All this points forward to the fact that God has made a way for us to be with him. And it is in Jesus Christ. It was in Jesus Christ back then too. All these things that point forward to how Jesus was going to ultimately unite his people. They were placeholders, show God's patience. And they show us amazingly how God ultimately welcomes his people into his presence forever. Yeah, the comprehensive story mm-hmm. that all points to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, whenever the, the question comes up, specifically you were talking about who can come into the presence of the Lord, the first thing that popped into my head is Psalm 24, mm-hmm. um, 3 through 6. It goes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him and who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That is absolutely the answer. The best commentary in the book of Leviticus is that verse. The title is, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? So that's the answer right there in Psalm 24. So that's, uh, you'll be hearing that from Jason when we get to that point. Yeah. Um, I heard it said that um, the you shall not part of the Ten Commandments is also a promise that in the future and as we are being sanctified and once we're you know with Christ that we will not do mm. those things mm. now does, is that your understanding also I've not heard that but that is sounds 100% consistent okay. with absolutely with the promise of of this righteousness being like, we're going to live in the in the perfection that God has designed for us and it absolutely includes those things. And it includes all the positives. So not only will we avoid the negatives, we will do all the positives. Uh, and that just gives us great hope. It helps us keep pushing on today. Because we're not going to get it perfectly. Who shall ascend the, the mountain of the Lord? We don't have clean hands. Not on our own, but we do in Christ. And it's his righteousness, his clean hands that are going to get us to that place where that law is perfectly true of us. And we will live in perfect harmony with our God.